On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we are catching up with Stephen Graham in Shane Meadows' The Virtues, gazing into the near future with Russell Tovey in Russell T. Davis' Years and Years, exploring the life of Anne Lister in Sally Wainwright's Gentleman Jack, and finally asking Tiger Waititi and Jermaine Clement what took so long for us Brits to find out what we do in the shadows. Plus... Plus, we dissect the latest Game of Thrones and we sit down with Russell T. Davis himself for an in-depth chat. Or at least Boyd did, as I had to run off and join the queue for Avengers Endgame. Unbelievable. Yep. (laughs) I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that is going to attempt to move at warp nine this week as we have an awful lot of stuff to get through and I'm painfully aware that the runtime has been creeping up in recent weeks. So... To that end, we're going to whiz through the inessential bits to make room for the good stuff. First up, a man who, well, let's be honest, it's Boyd. Uh, I could draw this out and lay on the suspense, but in the last eight months or so we've been doing this podcast, it's never, you know, actually been anyone but Boyd. So who am I kidding? Boyd, all good? Excellent. Moving on. Uh, Far be it for me to critique your introduction, but you did mention the possibility there are inessential bits of this podcast, which I think is intrinsically not a thing you're supposed to say about your own podcast. Really? Well, can I also just say James talking shite is a Apparently not a, yeah. a non-essential thing right. would seem. So I, sh- I should have skipped the whole intro is what you're saying. <laughs> All right. You've already heard her. Terry's here as well, which is nice, I guess. Um, it's a special week for Terry. It's a very special week for Terry because she's had to wade through months of Picard news, Expanse updates, reviews of Star Trek Discovery, over 35 episodes of this podcast, and it has all all been leading to this moment because Shane Meadows, purveyor of fine working class misery porn, has a new show out and Terry gets to bang on about it. But... But that comes later. That comes later. Before that, let's very quickly go through what we've been watching. Boyd. Right, I'm going to very quickly mention, I think you should leave. I mean, sure. Yes. That's not a problem. It's not me telling you to piss off. Right. Although that will happen. (laughs) It is a Netflix comedy sketch series created by and starring a guy called Tim Robinson, who's not very well known here. He was on Saturday Night Live in the States. He had his own sitcom. It's one of the most, it's it's already become a w- bit of a word of mouth sensation. If you have a look, you'll see people talking about it on Twitter. It's one of these 15 to 16, 17 minute shows that Netflix is doing. I mentioned I mentioned two, I think, in recent weeks. This is the third one I know of. And, and, and as a sketch show, it feels even smarter that they've gone down that route as the way it works. It's one of the most weird, kind of subversive, edgy sketch shows I've seen in ages. And it's almost difficult to describe it's any underlying theme. It feels quite random, but I feel like generally what it's going for is reflecting the weird way people behave in the current world, touching upon, you know, kind of issues of social media, and that, but not not in a, in a particularly, oh, this, we're going to address the way people, it's just, it just taps into the way people speak, behave, the kind of weird things that they do to each other and the way they treat each other. And, and it sounds very vague, but it's fucking brilliant. You lost me at comedy <laughs> sketch show. Yeah, and yeah. it could be it could be a funny or dire because you know it is comedy. So I could be doing killing two birds with one stone. Okay, well that would have been efficient this week, but we don't have time for funny or dire because we're on a schedule, boy. <laughs> I know, Terry. What have you been watching? Well, you said my uh, Shane Meadows chat would come later, but it oh, won't god. because oh god, in uh, in preparation for the upcoming virtues, I revisited. This is England. Specifically, this is England 86, 88 and 90. Are those three separate shows? They are three separate TV series following on from the film This is England. Right. And they're the last thing, the last TV project of Shane Meadows. 
Unrelenting. The last one did have moments of quite nice moments of levity, and you know, I mean, they're all, he always has comedian moments, doesn't he? Most incredibly black, dark comedian moments. Yeah, but, but the, yeah, the caravan scene in ninety. Yeah. Oh yeah, right? I mean, there yeah. are scenes of, of, a, yeah. of a desperate nature, of course. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> what have I been watching? I mean, I finished Bosch, but I'm not really going to talk about that because I feel we've covered the excellence of Bosch. Was it good? Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Enjoyed okay. it lots. Was it wasn't the best? Series, yeah, but it was you a good one. As five seasons go, which way does it rank? Oh, I don't know how I don't know. I don't know if I could rank them all in order, but okay. it's definitely not the best. Definitely okay, not the best. all right. But it's good. And there was a dog. He's got Bo- he's got a dog now. Oh, great. Yeah, Bosch has a dog, and the dog proved uh, instrumental in uh, saving. What his life. kind of dog? It's a little, little like a like a mutt. Okay, like a rescue mutt. Right. Good. Um, uh, I also watched a significant percentage of Star Trek: The Next Generation pilot episode Encounter at Farpoint, <laughs> which it turns out is just terrible. <laughs> Have I mentioned this already? I feel like I might have mentioned this already. So or maybe, wait, this is a random old Star Trek The Next Generation episode? It's the very first Star Trek The oh, Next okay, Generation okay. episode uh, because right, I was going right. to do a rewatch uh, of Star Trek The Next Generation to the... accompany my rewatch of Sons of Anarchy <laughs> and I've become mired about three quarters of the way through the first episode because it's borderline unwatchable. Wow. So, And I know it takes a while for all Star Trek series, but including Next Generation, to get going. But it's, I mean, it's not good. It's not good. So, you know, that was disappointing. So well, I might struggle through this one and then I shall skip ahead to one of the better episodes. Okay. As I press on. Right, anyway, that's what we've been watching. Time for news. Let's skip through these to keep things moving. Who's got some news? All right, mark the date in your diaries, everyone. Yeah. August the 7th, Mm -hmm. Fox Television in the States. I don't know who's going to show it here. I hope someone does. BH90210. Yes, yes, I saw this on social yes. media. The this, Beverly Hills reunion, and this is this is the really arch people playing the, themselves. Yes, this is the proper Priestley, Doherty, Garth, yes. Zeering, Austin Green, and Tory Spelling, and all are going to be in it. Doherty's a recent addition, isn't she? Yeah, mm. all are going to be in it, reprising their roles from the original Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero, which I, which I'm sure both me, <laughs> me and Terry, not you, because you're. I watched you're, it. Okay. Did you like it? I remember Mr. Walsh goes to Washington. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and Saturday Night Live used to do a brilliant skit on it where they'd have where one they'd each be giving each other keys because they said they didn't drink drive and it was kind of became a brilliant little um, trope in their comedic. <laughs> do you remember when they um the episode where they were trying to find the rave and they were going <laughs> yes. around town looking oh, for an God, egg? Yeah. Oh, so well, classic, so well, episode. classic episode. So I mean, as you say, apparently it's going to be a bit like self-referential and tricksy and all that. I, I genuinely can't wait to see it. <laughs> August seventh, I will be. I don't care. How, I will be watching it. All I don't right. care how we'll I we'll be reviewing that one. Okay, anything else? Uh, I wanted to talk about the fact that um, Amblin, uh, which is obviously Steven Spielberg's production company, has parted ways with Bull, you know, the CBS legal Mm. drama starring Michael Weatherly. Um, It comes after Eliza Dushku, who obviously we know from Buffy. Um, She wrote an account for the Boston Globe last year, um, at the end of last year, saying that um, he and CBS and by he, I mean Michael Weatherly, had harassed her. And she actually called out Spielberg and Amblin in this post and said she hadn't heard from them. And now it's been announced that they will no longer be working together. And once again, reaffirming that Steven Spielberg is a god. <laughs> um, have you heard there's been some slightly troubling Lost Boys news? No, have go you on. Heard this? Okay, so uh, as you know, CW ordered pilots based on a bunch of things earlier this year, including Lost Boys. Apparently, Lost Boys is not doing well. It's getting reshoots and also recasting. So I think they're maybe starting that one again from scratch, which which would, you know, 
kind of make you think right off. But then they did the same thing with Game of Thrones. Like Game of Thrones itself was reshot and recast. So yeah, yeah. it's not the yeah. death now. No. They're doing a um, interactive Kimmy Smitch, Kimmy Smith even Kimmy Schmitch, <laughs> Kimmy Schmidt. Special the on uninterruptible Netflix. Kimmy Schmidt. The, uninter- <laughs> the uninterruptible, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. An untitled one-off interactive special set to debut next year. It'll be the first interactive comedy for Netflix, and it's going to use the technology used on Bandersnatch, the Black Mirror episode. <clears throat> and I really like Kimmy Schmidt. I think it's a really, it's a great show, and it's just kind of, it, it, you know, it's just been one of the kind of most entertaining, smartly subversive. Um, American sitcoms of yeah. recent times and slowly goes under the radar a bit because it's only its like third season or whatever but I'm quite looking forward to the idea of an interactive episode we need quite. a branching narrative <laughs> well we'll see it's, uh, of all, do you know what of all, when, when it was announced I thought yeah that makes sense more than almost any other sitcom I could think of it'll be very with. different from Bandersnatch so yeah. that in itself because Kimmy Schmidt has little fantasy sequence moments yeah. like they used to do in 30 Rock Tina Fey's show other show um, I think it could work but so I'm intrigued by the possibility alright fair enough uh, Billions has re- been renewed for season 5 that's not a huge Shock, but that's the thing that's happened. John Favreau, though, is making a dinosaur documentary, like a like a, an Attenborough esque dinosaur series. Have you seen this? No. Yeah, he's making a pre prehistoric prehistoric planet Blimey. for Apple Plus. So he's going to be walking with dinosaurs. Sorry, but I'm not paying any attention. <laughs> Terry wasn't listening at all, so we're just going to move on. Uh, John Favreau dinosaurs. All you really need to know. Did you see the Netflix top ten? No. This was interesting. So you remember we, we said a few weeks ago that Netflix is going to start bringing out their own charts of their most popular shows. Oh, yes, yes, And yes. they've done the first one. Oh, my God. In, and it's a UK and um, Ireland-based top ten. And I have to get, it would, I'm going to get you to guess what number one is, but it take too long because you're not going to guess. It is. Number one is Black Summer. Do you know what Black Summer is? Not a clue. It's the Z Nation spin-off show. What? You know Z Nation is this zombie, which someone, I think, tweeted us about only today, didn't they? Is that right? I, I think I watched the first episode of that right. several years yeah, ago yeah right and didn't so, watch anymore no is it any good I, not, I don't know either I also watch so it's it's a, it's a zombie based thing in that universe and Netflix like as I often mention on the show you know we like transparency you know the people who handle Netflix obviously tells us about their shows in advance and we get to see them they completely ignore Black Summer everyone ignore Black Summer it's the number one show on That's Netflix amazing I know it's insane. So it just shows you that it's like, I guess it's their version of, you know, The Walking Dead. It's their, it, it shows you zombie thriller action. People absolutely fucking love it. Two is Afterlife, Ricky Gervais. That makes oh, sense. That's yeah. Good. yeah. Where's Friends? Friends is not in it, but I'll tell you what is, is um, uh, Bodyguard mm-hmm. is seven. Three is Riverdale. Four is Chili Regis of Sabrina. Five is your Star Trek Discovery. Yes. Should be higher. Um, talking about Bodyguard. Uh, thank you for that, Brody. Pleasure. Um, Richard Madden has been talking. We were talking last week about um, how long we think we're going to have to wait, right? Yeah. And he said, he suggested it could be two years. So he said, from a character wow. perspective, him and Jed were talking about it and it deserves a little bit of time leaving before they catch up with him. Um, probably 18 months to two years wow. for a potential new season. That's interesting. I wonder if that, that is interesting because I wonder if that means then I would, I would, my guess would be that Jed would do the next season of Line of Duty sixth first mm. and then do, but that makes sense, mm. which, I th- which makes me feel slightly better because that means the, the wait for Line of Duty won't be quite as long as yeah. I thought it might be. Yeah. Mm. So that's, I'm saying Line of Duty. I, I would have thought they'd want to leap on Bodyguard. That does surprise me. But no one, now, Jed is, I mean, Jed's literally the most powerful. Well, no I one's going to tell him what to do. The channel, the channel may want to, yeah. but fundamentally, like, no, if Jed yeah. doesn't want to do it, he, he wants more Hastings. That's it. Uh, speaking of which, if you haven't already listened to our Line of Duty Series 5 spoiler special, then do so. It is excellent. <laughs> um, John Lithgow is joining the uh, HBO's Perry Mason. Not as Perry Mason, obviously, because <laughs> that's Matthew Reese, but he's going to be in that. 
I'm really excited about that. That's got like a really good cast and um It is. I've never watched Perry Mason, so I'm a bit indifferent. Well, I think the old Perry Mason was a classic, you know, yeah. American mainstream legal drama. I think this is gonna be much edgier and more interesting and more yeah, intriguing. Are you excited that they've ordered a, a Batwoman TV series? No. No? <laughs> no. It's been, Ruby Rose has been no. spun out of the there Arrowverse. There are a lot of Bat-based TV series, aren't the there? The Arrowverse there? has spawned an awful lot of oh stuff. This will be the God. fourth spin-off from Arrow. Fucking the hell. The fourth, because we've yeah. had The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, and I think Supergirl, which didn't start as one, but kind of became one. Uh, and, but there's on. also the other ones. There's Gotham, which is showing yeah, up at the moment. A, that's ending, and B, that's not part of the Arrowverse. I know, I know, yeah. but I'm saying but that's still a Batman-based thing. It is, thing. it is. And there's is. another thing, isn't there, in the Asylum thing coming up soon? In oh, I'm sure Batman-based Asylum, know. something? Yeah. Oh, oh, it's too much. But yeah, so, you know, that's the thing. How many, if, if you're into the CW shows, also she's the first uh, LGBT main character in that world, so that's, uh, that's quite noteworthy. What we do in The Shadows, which we will be talking about a bit later, we're only just getting to see it over here, but it's been renewed for season two in the States by FX. That's quite exciting. And a moment of silence for the Game of Thrones Starbucks Cup, which has oh, unfortunately yeah. been recycled. Uh, the same day the episode went out, they went in and digitally removed the the cup, and then they tweeted, HBO tweeted, the latte that appeared in the episode was a mistake. Daenerys had ordered a herbal tea. Ba-dum, Jessica Roth from Happy Death Day has apparently joined uh-huh. the Utopia remake. Okay, So that's exciting. I mean, I haven't seen Happy Death Day, but I'm assuming it's exciting. Uh, and also in horror news, the Child's Play TV series is looking to come out in 2020, which is a little bit confusing to me because this is uh, this is uh, Brad Dourif's Chucky but obviously there's the Mark Hamill Chucky which is coming to cinemas so that, there's a whole like there's a lot of Chucky going on at the moment already too much Chucky already too much Chucky and finally <laughs> I've decided Somebody, um, BBC One's doing a Christmas Carol written by Stephen Knight so the twist is going to be it was all in the dream in a computer game like his terrible film uh, it is going to be with Guy Pierce and Andy Serkis and Stephen Graham and Charlotte Riley so actually it's semi-exciting and Rutger Hauer and Kay Van Novak so actually it, I mean the cast is pretty incredible and it's going to be three-parter on BBC One at Christmas co-produced with FX and um, we should say that the BAFTAs took place last night um, and I was there and um, I thought with by and large I thought it was a really good year because mm-hmm. Killing Eve was the you know huge big winner of the night, winning Best Drama um, and the two acting awards for um, and Jodie Comer and Best Sorting Actress uh, for Fiona Shaw. And you know it's sometimes iconic, the most amazing shows ever done necessarily win win awards of these things. But I thought it was absolutely brilliant that it, that it won those awards. Her speech, Jodie Comer's speech, yeah. dedicated the award to her nana. Every time she speaks with a, a Liverpoolian yeah. accent, I'm totally confused. I know it's incredible, um, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She's, how brilliant she is. I mean, I know. Yeah, she kind of completely embodies that role of this Eastern mm. European psychopathic assassin, and she's the most down to earth, funny, brilliant, engaging person. So her winning was brilliant. I love the fact that Cumberbatch won because he's been nominated like six, seven times before, never won a. Baffle TV award and he is incredible in Patrick Melrose and he was loved he was really sweet he seemed genuinely mm. thrilled like for, you know one of the biggest stars in the world it was great if there were some things that when she didn't win Derry Girls didn't win yeah it's got to so Derry Girls been by Sally Forever now we are we were we did love Sally Forever I but think, but yeah I mean yeah. Derry Girls is an iconic show that was a surprise I have to say and shows the, na- the nature of the jury system when you're on a jury yes. you I'm know. blaming you for this Boyd I wasn't I was on the drama jury so I Killing Eve won in the jury I was on oh okay so yeah, fine we, we, yeah, it was, are you allowed to say that now I am allowed to say you're allowed okay. to reveal that you're on the jury because it's in the brochure yeah um, and I love the fact that um, Jessica Hines won for um, There She Goes she's 
absolutely brilliant in that show, playing the mother. And Steve Pemberton winning for Inside Number Nine, number nine was great. So all in all, I thought it was a you know I thought it was a really really good year, and and it was fantastic. Yeah, and um, I got to see the one the highlight of the whole thing there was that um, uh, Andrew Scott, the hot priest in Fleabag with his mate Phoebe Waller-Bridge and they were dancing together <laughs> on the dance floor and I was like I sat there I sat there watching I really would love to go and speak to Andrew Scott and I'd really love to go and speak to him you know what I'm just going to let them have their moment I'm not going to interrupt like a little twat and I did oh, right, there we go good man thanks you, you, you are our character <laughs> viewpoint where she waves us yeah, away completely yeah. to it yeah totally yeah, yeah it was great Okay, and that is news. Now it's time for a guest. Three guests, in fact. Uh, while I was standing in line at the Cineworld IMAX in Leicester Square waiting for Avengers Endgame, Boyd had a good old chat with Russell T. Davis, Russell Tovey and Nicola Schindler about their new series, Years and Years, which takes a look at the very near future and the political and social hellscape that apparently lies in wait for us. Uh, and Boyd manages to throw in some queer as folk chat as well. Welcome Russell T. Davis, Nicola Schindler and Russell Tovey to the Pilot TV podcast. Hooray. Hi. Thank you so much. Don't you think the podcast has just gone up in quality? <laughs> Immediately. <Spiked>. Immediately. <laughs> you are the star, producer and writer, exec producer, everything of Years and Years, yes. which starts next Tuesday um, on BBC One. Now... From, I think this has been percolating in your head, hasn't it? This idea for a long, long time. Yes. Tell, tell us what was the what was the spark that made you think? Oh, I have to do this now. Oh, the spark was Trump getting elected. Absolutely, literally on the night of that election, I emailed around saying, "If I'm going to write this drama that I've been talking about for years and years and years, then um, it has to be now. If he gets elected tomorrow, and sadly, I was right. Sadly, it came to pass." Although, good news for the rest of us, because we all got work out of it. So yes. that's a positive, There's I always think. a plus. Yeah, that is good. Trump. And it feels quite... like When we went to the screening at the uh, at the IMAX, by the way, on the that's the biggest screen in the country, I think, yes. seeing your stuff that on, on that huge screen. Russell Tovey. Yeah. <laughs> lovely thing. Have you ever seen yourself that big on a screen? My ears have never been bigger. <laughs> Massive ears. But what I thought... Because I'd, I'd lucky enough to have been on set... He can say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd lucky enough to have been on set, and you kind of explained what the show was about, and it was like... A, this family saga and a kind of state of the world thing combined. But until you actually see it, I think, Nicola, it's hard to get a grasp of what it's, it feels so different when you actually see it. But when you, when Russell was explaining to you the concept, did you have in your mind like what it's going to be like and has it ended up being what you thought it was going to be? I think, yeah, he was really clear from the outset that it's a drama that moves into the future, but it's not futuristic. Right. It's not sci-fi. It's about people who you recognise doing things that you understand in a world you understand. And there might be the odd bit of technology which has moved on, which is fascinating and great and sometimes really funny. Uh, but ultimately, yes, because it, it was always going to be about people and how they react to each other and how a family evolves over time. Yeah, it feels like, an, like a mix of epic and intimate at the same time, which must be, I mean, I know, it feels like the, one of the hardest things to pull off. Did you find it a hard process writing, mixing those two things, seeing these extraordinary changes in the world, but through the eyes of like Russell's character and his family? I think, to be honest, I think writing epic and intimate kind of describes my career, quite genuinely, that you could say that about an episode, a good episode of Doctor Who. Of you could say that about Queer as Folk, you know, epic, there were deaths in that and extraordinary things happen, and yet it's about a bunch of lads in Manchester. So I like writing on that scale. It's like, you know what? I grew up, my parents were both classics teachers and they used to have books lined on the shelves of all the Greek and, and, and Roman myths and I used to sit, I was like six years old, I'd sit and read those myths so I've always think, I always kind of write on a, I always think there's an epic scale to the stuff that I write even when it's just people walking out of houses which drives the budget mad normally doesn't it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a problem for the people making my shows but um, but yes, a part of the challenge was this was, was, was to incorporate I mean 
it is, as you say, it's a hard show to describe. I worry about that. It's yeah. hard. And when you see it, it makes sense. You go, Absolutely. oh, right, I get it now. Um, I, think it's, I think it's very easy to understand once you see it. And But it's, when I saw it, all edited together for the first time, and this might sound really obvious, but I kind of watched episode one and I, and I, and I invented it, but I went, oh, it's about now. Right. It's now. It's today. It's like it might be five mm. years ahead. There's, that's, that's a metaphor, really. It is to me. I powerfully thought, "Oh my God, that's life in 2019." Powerfully put on the screen, and I'm delighted with that. Mm. I don't think part of the problem with drama is that it's all made so far in advance. Scripts get written a year in advance, then it takes a year to make, and then they can sit on a shelf for a year. It's very, very hard for drama to engage with the with the real world. Even the soaps, they're storyline six months in advance or more. You see very little of the real world on television, and I think now, while the real world is hotting up and being madder and stranger and wilder and sometimes better than you ever could have hoped, then um. It's our job to put that on telly. Yeah, because it feels like it's grappling with huge issues, Russell, like they're going on at the moment. Like, and I think in many ways we see them through your eyes. I know it's an ensemble piece and it's a whole family, but I felt like seeing it that your character was the one I immediately was like relating to. I know that, you know, relatable and all that, but I did feel like your anxiety about the state of the world at the moment is, feels very palpable. Did it feel like that way to you? Yeah, well, he, my, my character's a housing officer, so he's in the front line, so he's seeing what the human condition is for these people that are struggling and desperate and scared and trying to get refuge and asylum in our country. And then he's surrounded by the Zen phobia and the sensational media that's being portrayed and this character Vivian Rook and for some people in the show and the character playing my like my husband Ralph in it thinks it's funny that yeah. this person is existing and allowed to have these thoughts and be verbal with them and my character finds that incredibly disturbing because he knows what the experience is what the truth is and what the world is going into but no one else can so in the end it's kind of like he's the person who's had a few too many drinks at the party and being told to just quieten down have a glass of water do you know what I mean yeah, it's yeah. like so it's an incredible part to play yeah. because you, you it's, it's kind of like he's screaming into the wind in some ways and it does feel like there's a, you pack an incredible amount. I mean, I've just seen the first episode, but there's environmental stuff, there's asylum-seeking stuff, immigration, there's um, trans... The brilliant, I love the trans mm-hmm. thing. It's so interesting where you think the person's not... It's a minor spoiler, but yes. I think we have to... It's such an interesting idea that you think the person's going to be transgender and they end up being transhuman, wanting yes. to turn themselves into a digital. Yeah. For that, that's an amazing way of dealing with that issue. Are you? But it does feel like you're grappling with everything, like the big, big issues. Is that hard to kind of almost... And yeah, it doesn't feel like you're, it's shoehorning it. Is that hard to kind of... Well, I hope it doesn't. Thank you. Thank you. And I, but that's, that's no busier than life is. Right. It's, 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 it's sometimes, I think... You know, you can underestimate an audience for drama and and underwrite it and, and you know, dole out plots quite simply. And actually, I don't think this is particularly complicated. I just think it's packed. packed. But life is packed. Yes. Part of the reason for writing this is that life gets busier and madder and there's more to cope with, there's more to think about. We all get more politicised or we're more fed up with politics than we ever were. You know, both opposites are existing at the same time. And so... That's what I mean about putting that into a drama. That's that's the world now, and to put that into a drama, you have to pack it full. All it amounts to is it's 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 it, again. It's sounding complicated to watch, but it's a family. Mm. Every single person in that family has a story. They're all very strongly cast, very very strongly cast. They're all very distinct, and they all have their own story. And that simply unspools quite simply in front of you. Yeah, it's not complicated to watch. No, I think it's uh, people. 
in the industry look for simple ways of describing things these days so we're constantly being asked is it A or is it B Hmm. and actually the truth is it's both things we had a conversation really is it political is it family actually no decision you make as a family now doesn't have consequences Mm. because of everything that's happening around you so you can be both you can have a conversation with your children about Trump on the way to school and then you can have a conversation about why they've forgotten the games kit again and it's all the same thing there there aren't any divisions anymore so I think I agree when you see it you get it Mm. I think we're also in a world where like in America you've got whole families where the parents voted Trump and the kids are anti-Trump mm. you look at Brexit now you've got yeah. families where the, the parents vote leave and the kids are Remainers and then I've never known that in my lifetime where I've had like such a polarising political opposition to my own relatives or do you know what I mean or yeah, friends yeah. it's like and that's that's what this is about like the family in this have different opinions about what it is to be alive yeah. and that's great yeah I remember when Trump was elected you were very anxious about I think you were living in America when you yeah, were time and you were, yeah. you were you were actually anxious about what this does this mean for the world it's like an episode of The Simpsons it was an episode of The Simpsons it still is a very dark episode of The Simpsons it was an episode of The Simpsons yeah they did have presidents. yeah 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 that's you're right yeah absolutely yeah now the character Vivian Rook uh, played by Emma Thompson A is it hard to get Emma Thompson to take part in a TV show or did she just read the script and then want to do it and B the idea that she's hovering this character of this kind of becoming I guess a populist figure using mm-hmm. <laughs> using what's going on in the world for her own I mean to me that's I've only seen the first episode for her own um, ends hovering over the whole thing played out on TV and different TV shows and stuff how did she get involved and she, did she just jump at the idea because of, because of the whole She concept? pretty much jumped at the idea which is really disappointing not to have a great story about how we <laughs> waited outside the house for 10 days. Right. But, no, we got her the script and she said, she said, this is right up my street. But she said it was yes. more classy than that. And I, she loves Russell Wright, Russell's writing and she just thought all the ideas that were in that character who are around us, those people are around us everywhere, mm. she wanted to say something about them and she's done such an incredible performance because she's mm. humanised that person mm. and yes, we mostly see her through the television screen we do meet her later on a couple of times and that's really powerful but she's brought a humanity to it and a a, a, it's compelling in a really revolting way it's what's dangerous about those people their their charm and their humanity and their wit is is also terrifying yeah and i love the fact that we first see her on i think have i got news for you yes which of course I mean, I'm not saying there's any connection, but Boris Johnson was made a star by that show, That's wasn't he? a huge it? connection. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Why did it? Episode two, you see one pointless. That's my favourite wow. one. Wow. That's <laughs> pointless with Julie Good, with them. Not Julie Good, Julie P's Good. Um, and there's enormous fun to be had with that. But it's making a point that those people these days surfing the media and the zeitgeist, they know how to play the games. They know how to be on popular shows, be populist and popular. Um, it's it's a game they're playing. We should all watch out. We should all beware. What's amazing is I think so many people are going to watch this and think, oh yeah, I believe what she's saying. She's, she's right. Vovid. But you yeah. said that from the from the beginning. Also said, there's no point having a character who's some distant politician. There has to be someone who says a couple of things where you go, do you know what? I agree with that. Mm. There are there, yes. there are terrible things she says that you can't help but go. She's, God, she's got, got a point. She's got a big speech in episode two that I yeah. agree with completely. Yeah. To be honest, yeah, and um, it is a bit. We went in passing that she does meet members of the family. She's not always on right. a television screen. Right. There are and when she does, there are vital, life changing moments. Really, mm. so it, it, it does. 
does get more involved than it looks in right. the first episode. You do really interesting things with time in it, which again reminded me a little bit of Doctor Who. Like, you, you know, you kind of, there are there are scenes where you cover 10 years or five years in, yes. in a few minutes, and then, then we get to see, you know, longer things played out, it, more like in real time. Did, was that always part of your conception that you you would advance, kind of propel the story forward that, that quickly in certain ways? Yes, that was always part of it. I mean, part of the trick is to explain it. It starts in 2019, starts with the birth of a baby, which brings all the family together, and everyone stands around the bedside and Daniel Lyon says oh my god what's the future going to be like in five years time and zoom you go forward very quickly which is kind of fun there's enormous energy to that and but it, it helps you arrive at the future I think if the curtains had opened scene one and it was 2024 20, I was always very averse to that wasn't I, I, I just think a large part of the audience would just go oh no it's science fiction I'm going goodbye so you're led there yeah and I, I, I don't mean to make that sound primitive because I think I think you need leading there there's an awful lot of telly on life is very busy and I think if the drama can give you a hand in leading to you leading you to where we want you to be then that's a good thing so um yeah and that happens every episode every episode tends to move on a year and so you get these very fast what we call rip sequences we just rip we, through yeah, time although we didn't in the end use rips when I finished the end of the first episode, I did feel like I've kind of never seen anything like this before. In a way, did when you're writing it, there's not in, is that even in your mind or two? Are you just telling the story of the characters and you're addressing the things you want to address? It's not the most important thing. If you sit there determined to write something that no one's seen before, you end up writing something set in a junk or something. <laughs> yeah. Although that works. Yeah. Actually, that's Mary Poppins. Song. Mary Poppins. Yeah, yeah. Yes, isn't it? it's been done. <laughs> so you know, it's it's you just sit there thinking, make it good. Mm. Like, I always knew that would be the uh, the ending of episode one I think is terrific it's a phenomenal piece of direction and the cast absolutely go for it and as a production it lifts up to a a very high level it's it's thrilling and it's great to see some early reviews calling that terrifying I love being yes, terrifying I yes. think as long as you provoke an emotion <laughs> that's brilliant to get terror on screen is really really exciting and um, so yes I'm just lucky I'm very very lucky I get to do these things and get them made well, fair enough. We should mention going back now. It's twenty years since Queer as Folk. Let's just mention that, which is yes. where Nick, you, the two of you worked together the yes. first time, Nicola. And uh, did you watch it? Were you too young? You born? Of course, you born? How old were you when it? When it? Um, don't say. I must have oh, no. been. 15? Wow. It's 1998. Wow. So, 1998. It was, it's, it's it's 1999. I'm 30, 37 now, so I must have been 20 years ago, so I was, oh, yeah. I was 16, 17, yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. What, your, what are your main memories? Is the makers of it, of it now? Like, what are the things that you... That, that My main attention was to bend Russell Tobey. <laughs> 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 and you, at that it worked. Worked. Hooray! <laughs> Gosh, memories of that. It was a mad time, wasn't it? It was a brilliant time. Yes. It was an amazing time. We had such a good time making it. We worked so hard. We were so aware of the... We were aware, actually, of the responsibility oh, yes. of being given a show like that yeah. and also but we were being asked by a very adventurous Channel 4 at the time to do something that provoked everyone that made people laugh that felt joyous and celebratory so but everything came together at the same well. time it went out I also mm-hmm. kind of thought it would just vanish and be niche because it went out at 10.30 on a Tuesday night yeah. not the best slot in the world so you kind of thought oh there'll be one of those shows that tick away quietly and then as the weeks went on it just got mad I mean remember we had Elton John phoning the office mini driver for you know, this is this bit, people would phone up to us for VHS's that's how long ago yeah. it was they'd want tapes of it Amazing. Mini Driver how strange that is brilliant and I remember that just how slick and entertaining and funny it was it felt like one of those American shows which you didn't see very often. that was my memory almost more than the subject matter and the kind yes. of the edginess of it boys being very modest there because it was a huge press screening with about 200 journalists mm-hmm. which we don't normally have and they were out for our blood it was wildly vicious and the gay press particularly why aren't there condoms in it why don't you mention AIDS how dare you do this how dare he be 15 
genuinely just one hand raised itself to them. Truly, one hand raised itself in the auditorium and said, I love this and I think my readers will love this. And that was Boyd Hilton and I've loved no. you ever since. But I, I, it truly I, yeah. was. Yeah. Like one voice in the room. I'm not, I've never forgotten it. Oh, thanks for remembering. Truly, truly, truly. That's amazing you remember. But it was true that because you were surrounded by the Daily Mail and the Sun. It's yes. incredible how it was angry. Great it yeah. was unbelievable. What did you think of it when you saw it, Russell? Do you, do you, can you remember? I just remember the first episode and seeing... Nathan get rimmed and I have no idea what it was at all and being terrified which is what you want I felt terror and shot and thought oh my god what is this world and the soundtrack and Sexy Boy that song him being on the back of the bus going I'm doing it I'm doing it wow let me ask you a golden age of TV question because this feels like you know now part of the whole big ambitious you know epic way that TV is going are you all, do you feel it? I feel, you know, I mean, our magazine, Pirate TV, is all about how this yeah. how brilliant scripted, particularly television, is now. And it gets better and better and more sophisticated. Does it feel that way to you being in it, being in, in that world, either acting in it or producing it or writing it? It's hard to see that in it. Yeah. <laughs> when it's in it, you're just, when you're in it, you're just trying to find the next thing to okay. make and trying to find the person who wants to make the next thing. But yes, there are, there's an ambition that there wasn't always and there's, a willingness to take risk that there wasn't always mm. and there's the desire for the new which on the one hand can sometimes be hang on audiences want to look backwards as well mm. but but also now you're no longer being asked to make the next you have to invent what the next is which is great that's brilliant that's exciting. i think it's fantastic for writers like russell who have ideas i think it's quite hard for people who have always been on teams and and on big series because right. it, it's hard to know where where there's a place and even though we don't get made automatically i, I oh, can't no, complain there are a lot of writers who no. die to have the chances that i get nonetheless you do have to sing for your living yes and because there's so many people now wanting to make drama it gets harder and harder that's weird isn't it like yes. you know like 500 shows a year or something yeah, yeah. God, also yeah. five thousand indies now when there was right. five when we did chorus work yes. so i mean it is an interesting process right. but Would it is exciting and you don't it, it, you don't feel like you're in it because when you watch a great show you just think god i wish i could be part of that and it feels like it feels like i'd be making jack and Nori. when i watch the good fight i love the good fight oh, i adore fantastic. the good fight yeah. and i watch that thinking oh my god i would love to just wash their clothes i just love them you know it's just an amazing i just want to meet that cast and hug them so you know you don't really feel do you want to do anything about like greek tragedies or like have you read have you read um song of achilles have you read uh, yes yeah like, i have yes sort of world? yes 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 i wonder yeah someone pitched that to me Did they? oh really yeah but oh. As in, wasn't brad pitt making it at one point was he i'd do that i'd work with him okay goodbye everyone. <laughs> Yeah. That's the and with your girlfriend, your siren. It, yes, 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 it is. Yes, yes, yes. I know. Why am I not that, leaping at that? Actually, I would because I was brought up on those Greek myths. Be amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you make them feel like yeah, it is real. now? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. To stop the these and the those and the togas and the yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. Although, if we get Harry Hamlin in looking like he did in Clash of the Titans, <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be a very <laughs> fine great thing. look. Yeah. But Russell, would you? You, you know, you, would, are you tempted to write and you know to get your own stuff and do your own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm tempted. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You know, I do bits and bobs. I'm trying something at the minute. I had no idea. About, yeah. Oh really? Yeah, okay. I'm I'm crap at following things through. I've had readings of plays and everything, and then they want to see a new draft, and I'm bored a bit and want to do something else. No, don't be like that. You can, that's give the, it to me. Come I'll on, help. you need to work with Nicola. Yeah, yeah. Oh, glad we're setting this up. Should give a deadline. Right. I'll send you something. Oh, you yeah. can't leave ideas right, half born. You've got. Come on. Yeah, right. I'd love to see a Russell Tovey drama or, or comedy or whatever. Yeah, it's a comedy. Yeah. Okay. Oh, comedy. Great. 
Oh, oh you're very funny. Oh, yeah. Come on. <laughs> all right. Right, project for the summer. Project for the summer. Okay. Yeah. Fine, we'll shoot in the summer. Okay, well, we'll be, let's all return to this room in, you know, a year's yeah. time and we'll be, re- we'll be discussing yeah. your new show. There we go. Produced by Red Productions on BBC. Start. 9.30 Monday night. Yeah, you can. It's more BBC 2. Oh, BBC Okay, that's fine. I'm serious. Are you? What's my mic? I'm brilliant. I'm glad I brought it up. Boyd could be man at press launch. I'm always... Everyone else saying... That's my role. Totally available to be man at press launch. Yeah, if it's just a cameo. Comes off, you're executive producing now. I demand the credit. I've always wondered what that means. <laughs> thank you. No idea. Russell, Russell, and Nicola, thank you so much. Thank thank you. It's a fantastic show. I can't wait Let's to see the rest of it. Yeah, oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank Cheers. You. Right, on to this week's reviews. And because Terry looks like she's going to burst if we put this off any longer, let's dive straight into The Virtues. This is Shane Meadows' new miniseries starring the ever-excellent Stephen Graham as Joseph, a man who, with the mother of all hangovers, heads to Ireland to confront the spectres of a childhood in the care system that he spent his entire life running away from. Terry, have at it. (laughs) So... So I think this is extraordinary. You shocked me. I'm just going to jump in from the get-go. So as you say, this is Stephen Graham, probably as Joseph, um, uh, is on the absolute form of his career in the show. It is based, as I'm sure most people know by now, on Shane's own experiences, not in the Irish care system, but of abuse. He gave an interview this Sunday in The Observer with Miranda Sawyer where he talked about um, being sexually abused by an older child when he was a kid. And I actually interviewed Shane and the cast at a BAFTA event and I kind of asked, I said to him, you know, this is the first thing you've done since This Is England, which has been his only TV work, Um, but I've heard you've had this idea for years. Where did it come from? And he said to me that it was something from his childhood that he'd kind of been, had in his breath and he decided to make something kind of more explicitly about it. Although if you look at a lot of his other work, Dead Man's Shoes, for example, revenge is a very big kind of theme for Shane in everything that he does. He called Jack Thorne, his writer, who he he works with a lot, and they came up with the virtues. And it's harrowing. It's all the things you'd expect it to be. Um, But it is... Also, I think a real step on for Shane from a filmmaking perspective. There are some stuff you'll recognise that was in Dead Man's Shoes. So the use of kind of um, more surreal techniques. There's kind of not fantasy as elements as such, but kind of distortions of reality. There's an incredible sequence where Stephen Graham's character Joseph is drunk, mm. and they um, he had a body rig on, and it's this kind of face cam, face cam, and it's like this goldfish bowl effect. It, it does. Some really interesting I think craft stuff going on in this show but fundamentally the beating heart of it is Stephen Graham who just gives this harrowing incredibly devastating performance and actually it's the small moments for me there's a bit um, sat around a dinner table where he's talking to his son his ex-partner is going to move away with mm. their kid and it's naturalistic it's devastating um, it's phenomenal and then when he goes to Ireland you get introduced to his sister Helen Behan who is um, uh, one of Shane's kind of discoveries he met her in a pub she's not an actress she's a nurse um, she was in This Is England as the nurse and she's now got a bigger role in this she plays his sister who he goes to find um, Neve Alga, who is um, plays his sister-in-law, who we profiled in Empire Magazine the other month. She puts in a phenomenal performance. And essentially, this four-part 
kind of series takes you on the journey as Joseph digs into this secret that he's buried his entire life. Um, it is difficult in places. I think, you know, it is uh, really graphic in places. There's a bit where he's hung over, where he's like covered oh, in yeah. vomit and it's unflinching in the way that Shane Meadows is. But I'm interested in what you, as somebody who, you know, you have struggles sometimes, right, with quite Reality. harrowing <laughs> Misery dark. porn, yes. But it's not, I and I take offence at misery porn because I don't think it is misery porn because what? it isn't gratuitously unnecessarily. Do you think it is? Well, I, I, the, the problem with this is I only had access to the first episode and right. I feel that this is not a show that can be judged from the first episode. I feel the first episode is all set up because it ends with yes. the beginning of the story. So it doesn't begin until that. Like, it, it's a slow burn start which does seem to revel in unpleasantness like it's so it starts as you say a very naturalistic scene around a dinner table and I was like I'm watching the world's most depressing reality TV show because they're just talking shit like around a dinner table but as it goes on like there's a real subtext of grief like mm. the fact that his his former partner is taking his son to go and live in Australia and, like, and he breaks down at the table and that really got me like yeah. straight off the bat I was like already kind of welling up I was like oh god this is going to just destroy me this is and then he goes out on the lash uh, and again it's really sort of graphic and if it felt to me like it wasn't, we don't know enough about the character going forward, but it didn't feel like it was about alcoholism. It felt like a man with so many demons, he was trying to drown out the voices. Mm. And just him like going up to strangers, ordering drink after drink, then having a kebab and throwing up and passing out. I mean, I'm sure it's a familiar you know, scene to a lot of people, but it's incredibly shot and it's incredibly powerful. And then, I don't know, just li- there were little moments that I loved, like the Jobsworth ferry ticket salesman, who yeah. was just such an asshole to him for no reason, because he saw this guy, quite working class, cut on his head, a bit dirty and just gave him no respect whatsoever and you know that's kind of what he had to deal with and you see him kind of looking at the picture of him as a child and kind of wanting to explore that and seeing I I think the departure of his own child makes him think more about his childhood and that he needs to face this thing that he until that point hasn't done so it it really interested me and I found it very powerful and you're right in that first episode is it kind of really kicks in the second episode and Shane isn't you know as a filmmaker, Shane Meadows is not. He doesn't worry about the pacing that you might expect of a traditional series. He isn't like, right, now we have to drop in an action piece. And now it j-. he goes at the speed that he believes the story mm. needs, which I think makes him an incredibly powerful filmmaker. But you're right. It's actually those those tiny moments, those tiny naturalistic, realistic moments, as opposed to the big bombshell moments or the big moments of high drama. It is the fact that that guy's a complete arsehole to him um, and kind of how humiliating that is that's one of the most painful things to watch it really is just, and just when he goes up to random strangers can I come and sit with you in the pub I don't want to sit there on my, when he's sitting drinking on his own at the table there's a real tragedy to that and joining him with strangers and they're really accommodating and they're lovely and Shane Meadows clearly has a, an incredible eye for verisimilitude like he, he sees the realism in characters but for me and this is more about me than the show it's, like, it's just too much reality mm. do you know what I mean there's like, like there's just too much much in this that it's too I need to be on like a starship do you know what I mean I need my escapism I need to to go somewhere else I don't need to it's too real too much real so it's interesting isn't it because I, I I mean it, it, I love this stuff and I think um for me it is a weird form of escapism in a strange way because I guess I, I'm sitting there watching it thinking I'm not actually thinking explicitly oh you know my life is much much better than these people yeah. well, it's comparative but, escapism yeah, yeah it's comparative types, escapism but 
I feel there is, you know, it's storytelling. For me, any kind of storytelling, I mean, this is a pompous philosophical world. Any kind but of don't let that stop is, you. I'm not going <laughs> to stop you. Like, stop me, yeah. Is, um, is an escape. So even though this is, I mean, it, it is extraordinarily relentlessly, not relentless, extraordinarily heavy going and intense is the word I'd use. Mm. But what is you? what you said just now about the, how he doesn't, how Shane and um, working with Jack Thorne particularly doesn't abide by the rules of, you know, the three act structure yeah. of episodes and all this stuff and all the, all the classic kind of things I think that probably script editors and, and writers normally tell you to do. He completely blows them out of the water. And I think that's what makes him so special. Mm. One of the things anyway. And on top of that, and you would also as well, he, he, he revels creatively in the, in the hardest moments yeah. of people's lives. And I think you might, scenes in some other shows, which they may gloss over them, or at least like show you a bit of them, he's like front and centre, I'm going to show you. Every, so that scene where the, the drink binge scene, and I think he is supposed to be a recovering alcoholic, which is partly why yeah. his ex is leaving the country. Yeah. With, oh, really? with, yeah. Okay. I think that's alluded to quite heavily. Um, you know, that rock bottom drinking thing is a long unbelievably intense and spectacularly convincing um, dis- uh, uh, depiction of a man about to hit rock, rock bottom. Because it's got to be like 15, and destroying 20 himself. minutes yeah. long. Yeah. And, he- and any, normally, you know, I mean, of course, he, you know, he, he normally a kind of TV company or, you know, I'm sure there'd be notes going, really, do we really want this length yep. of, of thing? And you're right. And you get to see in the first episode and it hasn't even kicked in yet. The yeah. episode two. Episode two is actually probably, you, I think I think you'd find a lot less distressing because yep. he's, and again, in episode two, when he arrives back at the place where he, where, you know, the means so much to him as a kid and he's meeting these people for the first time is strange people who haven't that those scenes are incredible as well the realism of those that other people I think would find hard to make believable and realistic it's so incredible that genius for making those difficult moments seem so real and not put a foot wrong that is The Virtues aka Terry's favourite show ever and it <laughs> airs on Wednesday the 15th of May at 9pm on Channel 4 Next up is Russell T. Davis' Years and Years. As you've already heard, this focuses on a family in Manchester in 2019 until Russell Tovey stands up, bemoans the state of the world and wonders what hell we'll be living in in five years' time. At which point, the clock spins forward and we find out. Now, this is brilliant, but I honestly think I might have found this more depressing than The Virtues. Not <laughs> it's be- a good week for you. Not because of the tone, but because Davis really kind of faced is head on with terrifying clarity like how utterly fucked we currently are as a species I mean maybe terrifying more than depressing but oh my god yeah this is this is his state of the world piece really and and I think you know again I think in in my chat with him he talked about it's been percolating his mind for years and years yeah um he said that this is a show where he had the whole idea of it ages ago and has the final scene in his head so he's got you know some writers just write stuff and then it comes out and then mm-hmm. work our way to some ending he absolutely this is going to have a very very specific thing that happens at the end which which will it has an incredible thing that happens in the first episode which we can't which we won't spoil yeah um I think it's a masterpiece. So I'm getting I, in the same way. I think probably the I think the virtues are masterpiece. So I think we've got two stone cold TV masterpieces in the same way. But I think the same way that virtues is definitely like catnip for Terry and probably mm. can. It's not. I can't think of anything that she'd rather watch yeah. and talk about. This is about. your virtues. This is isn't my it? Yeah. because I'm. A, I love Rusty Davis. As, as I said, in the thing ever since I first saw Queer as Folk, and I've, I've been a fan of everything single thing he's done since then. I, this does feel like a summation of all of his themes, his big themes and ideas. Mm. The fact that he always mixes the epic with the intimate he he tackles big you know the great 
issues of life and this particular show the issues of society and 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 the world but through the intimate stories of people's lives through this one family. And I think particularly through Russell's character, Russell Tovey's character, yeah. Daniel, who is a few times in the first episode, you see him looking terrified, like the fear playing across his face when he's watching Vivian Rook, the character yeah, played Emma by Emma Thompson. Thompson, who is this horrendous, populist... Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson yeah, mm. meets, um, you know... Farage. Farage. Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins. All of these people... That, all these, <laughs> all people, these twats all the for all these people. Yeah, all the best people all mixed up in one. And he is visibly scared by her and by stuff that's happening in the world, more than the other characters. And the other characters either treat as a joke a bit or actually quite like the Vivian Rook character. Mm. And very carefully, he doesn't make Vivian Rook's character hateful from the start. He makes a kind of amazing... Well, she has some speeches yeah, that resonate right. deliberately. Exactly. She's entertaining... She's and she's fun. Mm. She's kind of like a more. She's a much smarter, much smarter version of Katie Hopkins. Yeah, um, mixed with kind of the charm of Boris, of Boris Johnson, if you like. Anyway, he's tackling all this stuff, but through incredibly accessible, interesting, engaging characters and their story. So Russell Tovey, he's he's an immigration officer. He marries a guy who's quite who's quite a bit of an idiot, a bit of a doofus, yeah. and then he has an affair. It's no spoiler. This is kind of you get to see it a bit in the trailer with a, a with a guy seeking asylum from Eastern Europe. He's been persecuted for being gay. So there's like a gay love story. There's a there's a there's a whole story about one a young woman, a teenager who wants to become a transhuman. That's yeah. fascinating. Who, who wants to become mm. a digital being, and, she, and that is in turn in, massively ingrained in her identity. That's really delicately done because that yeah. could have very easily felt dismissive and marginalising right. of trans issues. And actually, it, it feels no, it's not, quite yeah. current and Absolutely. resonant. It's very. It's a, he's got a very light touch. It's a geniusly brilliant way of looking at this um, hot, most hot of hot topics yeah. right now. This the trans issue. But everything in this show is everything. A hot topic. There's, like it's it's everything. There's environmental concerns. You're right. Yeah, in in episode two, which I've which I've seen already, yeah, there's a run on a bank. Mm, so yeah. it's like the Northern yeah. Rock situation, but writ large. But as if if it had gone really really wrong, and the, and the government hadn't bailed them out yeah. because they can't because the world is so fucked up. Mm. Everything that's going on in the world, Trump gets reelected in the yeah. first five minutes of the show. And so and what's incredible about it is is he's come up with a way of telling the of addressing the terrifying things that are happening in the world in a brilliantly entertaining and funny way. And he's got it all on screen. By the way, I visited the set earlier in this year in the spring and it's up now and he, he said it has to well, be on as to, soon yeah. as possible it, it needs because so things calm. are happening in the world yeah. just like he's writing about I love it I can't get enough of it it's like a thrilling thing and the pace of it is brilliant the music by Murray Gold is phenomenal I absolutely love it yeah it's 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 the the problem is for me that made me feel quite uncomfortable it just hits so close to the bone that you look at this and you think I could 100% believe that all of these things happen in the next five years and I'm not sure that's a world I want to live in like well, it's most horrific of it, most of it is simply an extension of what's of where we are now right. yeah but and it's the fatalism of it that there's no I think there will yeah, be light at the end of the and tunnel there's nothing you can do and there's nothing really we can do about it and that the path we're on, kind of, you can see very clearly where it ends up very quick, yeah. very, very And it quickly. gets worse, not better. Yeah, and it's worse than any, I have to say, like, because you're used to kind of dystopian sci-fi and it's all about technology and, and it's very light on that stuff. And mm. actually, it's bleaker because it's about, it's not about the damage that technology does, it's about the damage that humanity does and what our lack of humanity is doing. And it doesn't feel that far away from where we are. I was really taught, the bit I was struggling with was, was um was Emma Thompson's character. So when I first when she first started talking that 
a northern accent. <laughs> I bri- like my entire body bristled, and I was like, I don't know how I feel because she's so clearly playing a archetype. And I think it's kind of genius casting because she's Emma Thompson, mm. who's so loved. So every you you immediately warm to her when she comes on stage, yeah. um, on screen. Sorry, on stage, um, but kind of on stage. Yeah, she's so, seen on yeah, on literally on, on, on question stages, time, yeah, constantly. on stages. Yeah. And so when you see her, you you have this warmth towards her. And then she starts speaking and you feel, and my body started rejecting against her. And I, I was like, I didn't know if it was too much of a character caricature or if it felt... Did, did it strike a bit close to home for you, A bit like a like one, one of the first things she says is, I don't give a fuck. I know. And I was like, wow, it's like being back in the pod booth. <laughs> but I, the more... The more I saw her, the more comfortable I got with it. But I did have a, I had a quite a weird reaction. I couldn't work out if it was because you're so used to being on her side. And actually, that is genius because you see how she can be the voice of the people and how people can follow her and, and how those those figures do become figures that people flock to. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. you've, and it felt very confusing um, to me. And it felt, this felt epic and small at the same yeah. time. The, the kind of intersection of these political moments and these personal moments were just played beautifully because every time it felt a little bit like it, it was like grandstanding slightly and it would pull it right mm-hmm. back down to the human level which I just think is is Russell T Davis just being a genius storyteller mm. his his I think you just said it like his lightness of touch and the way he can move between these huge epic issues and then bring it right down to the detail and to what it means to you, me as a person and you as a person and the minutiae of our lives I thought was just beautifully done. And we won't spoil it but as Boyd alluded to the the end of the first episode makes that first episode one of the most exhausting terrifying and incredible <laughs> hours of television mm. like it's it's, it's almost like you get to the end of that, you think, I don't know where this is going or how they can possibly continue this in episode two. And yeah, and he manages do. it. And I love the device where, you know, each episode time skips forward like a, yeah. a roughly a year. Yeah. So yeah. It all, yeah. it's all accelerating. And it's all based on, most of it is told through big social occasions. So there's yeah. birthdays and celebrations yeah. Family, and New Year's Eve and things like that. It's so clever because those are, and it's just tiny little things like he's obsessed with WhatsApp groups, how WhatsApp groups have changed the way people interact with each other. So, and he has like a visual version of that where he has a, a kind of Alexa type thing called that everyone senior. Can, so, yeah. called senior that everyone can chat to each other at the same time and he's so right WhatsApp groups have been a big and people criticise social media for people being obsessed with using their phones but actually he's very positive about WhatsApp groups and he's like oh, well, I now talk to my nephews and nieces every night and we, we five or six times we, whereas five years ago I would have seen them at Christmas and birthdays and that would be it yeah. and I think so there's, there are positive things he's making points he's making here there is hope I think I think there's going to be hope in the end I'll be surprised if there's a particularly bleak ending I don't know that is years and years, highly recommended, and it airs on Tuesday the 14th of May at 9pm on BBC One. Next, we have Sally Wainwright's Gentleman Jack, which stars Saran Jones as Anne Lister, the 19th century diarist, landowner, explorer, mountaineer, and, according to Wikipedia, the first modern lesbian. What do we make of this? Oh, 
mainly like how hilarious is you saying first modern lesbian. <laughs> I'd read it. It's Wikipedia. Um, so I and I love Sally Wainwright. I should say so. Um, who did Happy Valley, and I think is one of the best writers of women, interesting, complex women um, working today. I don't think I have ever seen a period drama like this. Like. I kept forgetting that I I was watching a 19th century period drama because, I mean, Saran Jones, I think, is uh, just a wonderful actor. Um, Now, what it is, is that it felt really contemporary and really authentic Mm. and none of the normal... I'm not a massive natural fan of period. I think it feels stuffy, it feels clumsy um, and you get none of that. It has a beautiful pacing, a beautiful rhythm. Um, The the way they speak, the dialogue is so well-crafted and so realistically crafted. I love um, the chemistry between her and Sophie Rundle, is that it? Yeah. Um, Who plays Anne Walker and I love, love, love Saran Jones's characterization of um, this character because she is um, she is a lesbian and she is in 19th century society and obviously it was a huge taboo and you she she comes with the toughness and the kind of self-protective nature and the slightly hard nature that you may expect of somebody who is kind of having to live in the shadows to a certain extent and protect themselves from a society that certainly doesn't understand and doesn't want to understand but she plays this character with this beautiful vulnerability which she can't you get these flashes of there's an incredible scene when a flashback scene when she discovers her lover is going to marry a man mm. and it is so devastating and you just get a snap a little bit of it and it is the performance from her in that scene is incredible. The sex scenes are really good because it isn't some porny, fetishized man's version of what women look like when they have sex. It wasn't particularly romantic or or beautiful. There's no kind of soft curve of the breast and it's kind of awkward and a bit kind of frenetic and a little bit aggressive. And it felt like probably the most realistic depiction of, of lesbian sex I've seen on a kind of a main British TV channel mm. um, in a long time. So I really, really, really like this. It's nice to see Gemma Show. Whelan, Yara yes. Greyjoy in a very different <laughs> yes. role in this. Gemma Whelan is great. The casting is brilliant yeah. because you've got Gemma, Gemma Whelan as her highly disapproving sister who is fantastic and kind of clearly resents. In the, fir- the first scene, I love the first scene which sets up all, every character yeah. is waiting for Saran Jones to arrive. Yeah. He's late back from some mysterious journey she's been on and they're all like, it's so cleverly, like she's the centre of their world and they kind of resent her her parents and her family and everyone she works with and the servants and then she arrives in this storm um, and she's kind of been riding the stagecoach really violently she brings with her a French maid (laughs) and you're like the whole thing is exactly right it's exactly what I thought this is unlike any period drama we've ever seen except maybe it reminded me of Tom Jones the film Tom Jones Mm. the 1963 Tony Richardson film which is a bawdy funny Mm. breaking the fourth wall he talks to the camera so in this she talks to yes. she looks to yeah. camera this yeah. other flea bag and yeah. it's and it's fun and bawdy and 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 incredibly emotional yeah. and sexy and everything but it's so 
uh, brilliantly written that it that that kind of that kind of subversiveness is there from the start, and that also makes it completely unlike mm. any other period drama. Yeah. And that's what made it feel. Well, Terry mentioned this; it feeling very contemporary. The way it's shot is very contemporary, and I think that in particular, there's a, that really out of nowhere sort of fourth wall busting comment, sort of flea bag esque comment to yeah. camera. But it's only one in the first episode, and it kind of it, and you think, did that just happen? Yeah, there are a couple mm. of other glances. To yeah, camera. Yeah, it's yeah. very like it's yeah. very subtly done. Yeah, it's not clumsy at all. Yeah. And I know I think she's fantastic in it. Yeah. This, this fascinating me. I didn't know anything uh, about this character. At Any all. of the and people in it, like, Saran Jones. You no, never heard <laughs> No, Anne Lister is someone I'd never, I'd never heard. No, of. Obviously, I don't now, think many now had, thanks yeah. to Wikipedia, I know lots about her. Yeah. She was the first modern lesbian, didn't you know? <laughs> uh, but again, it's it's really interesting. You know, she was struggling with the fact that she was a landowner but didn't have rights and mm. couldn't vote. And obviously, being a woman and a landowner at that time was kind of incompatible. And then being openly gay was very problematic there as well. Lots and lots of issues she had to deal with. It's a, a fascinating character. Obviously, the series is called Gentleman Jack, as that is a nickname that was applied to her. Yeah, she was known as. Yeah. And I just love the fact, you know, it would be easy to have played this role with shame and with this, mm. but she's oh. an incredibly proud yeah. character, incredibly proud. And I just think... And hugely Saran, capable. Yeah, really capable and not and just wants, you know, to be treated, to have parity. And, but the control Saran Jones has in in how she plays this character, I just think mm. is... It's absolutely phenomenal. He has this incredible sort of self-assuredness yes. that she will not be backed down by the stroppy tenant. Like she goes out and gets what she wants. She does what she wants. Yeah, yeah. the way she deals with a kind of authority, she deals with the doctor who's brilliant. Yeah. She deals yeah. with authority figures. She was the parent. It's so, uh, it's just, that's what makes it so supremely enjoyable, I think, mm. because you're like, oh my God, she's like a superhero. Yeah, like a she's superhero. like a superhero. You know, lesbian yeah. superhero. <laughs> Period lesbian superhero. I mean, it's fucking brilliant, isn't it? But also and this not is, in a this, cliche, no, no, not no, in no, a no, like strident, yeah. I have to be tougher than totally. the men to be respected by exactly. the men like on her yeah. terms yeah. what is brilliant is so this this has got a lot in common with years and years because this is this is Sally Waymark she's wanted to make this story for you for a long long time she's had it you know she 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 pitched it ages and ages ago Russell T Davis wanted to make his show and what I think's happened is these are both on prime time BBC One to unbelievably subversive, edgy, daring, but brilliantly entertaining shows. I think it shows how fantastic, how far we've come with BBC particularly. Mm. And what's great is they're both so powerful now because they're a bit... Bit done massive hit shows. He, you know, he wrote um, the Very English Scandal, which is you know picking up loads of awards. Her shows are all phenomenally successful. Happy Valley, um, Last Tango in Halifax, and so they get the freedom. If you come up with brilliant stuff that also does really well, you do get that creative freedom. And, it's, and the result of these two extraordinary series, I think, I think it's amazing that they kind of they've arrived in the same week. I think it's brilliant. It's Gentleman Jack, which airs on Sunday the nineteenth of May at nine pm on BBC One. Yeah. Lastly this week is What We Do in the Shadows. We've waited months and months for this. And then rather abruptly, this show suddenly received its long overdue UK air date and it's upon us. So this is the small screen adaptation of the movie of the same name in which we take a kind of documentarian look at the lives of a household of modern day vampires living in a house in Staten Island. <laughs> now, I, sh- I should say, Boyd, I, yes. I've not seen the film. So Taika right. Waititi's film here, I, I've completely okay. passed me by. It's been on my watch list for ages. Yeah. And I've been meaning to see it but I wasn't sure if I'd like it. However, now having watched this show, I'm certainly going to watch it because I really enjoyed this. It's really, really funny. It's really, really well made. It's just so... Again, it's that we've talked about the lightness of touch already, today, but there's a real lightness of touch here. You need 
a very precise balance to make this work. Yeah. But there's a real subtlety to the humour. Like when the vampires are kind of chatting and bickering or talking to the documentary crew or, you know, speaking to his familiar Guillermo. I mean, there's a real, real sort of tragedy there as well. I love, uh, there's a moment where a, so there's, a, there's a, a big elder vampire from Eastern Europe's coming over and he comes out of his coffin and he come, and he's put creepy paper everywhere, crepe paper, which yep. is just hilarious. But there's a bit where he clocks the documentary crew and he kind of looks at them and they have to explain to the other oh no it's fine ignore them and pretend they're not there yeah, yeah. And it, there's a real intimacy to you and you feel like you know these characters these kind of crazy caricatured vampire characters and it, it's an interesting that this has supplanted so well from being a sort of Kiwi starring Kiwi set comedy film to a sort of New York set thing mm. and they've maintained the same sensibility yeah I mean I love the film um, it's just a brilliant premise mm, so it is to, to, it to is. tell the story of a group of vampires through the medium of the faux yeah. documentary yeah. it's house sharing house sharing like, yeah <laughs> it's the office meets vampires in, it's in fresh meat in fresh meat with a bit of modern family <laughs> and you know all those things so the joy of it is that format and that awareness they're making the documentary again the glances to camera which yeah. happens a lot which I, my one I've sli- I think they slightly overdid that in that first episode there are a lot of looks to camera yeah. and you think you know it's like you go back to David Brent I do think everything goes back to the UK office particularly none of this would happen without that and Spinal Tap of course um, and you've got to limit those moments I think and it got, I thought we went a little bit too far I, but, they've, so, but the, the tone of it is so giddily enjoyable yeah you know that even though I wouldn't describe it as I mean I don't, I, I've, I've said before I hardly ever laugh at that anything so it's not like I'm not sitting there in hysterics but it's so lovely the tone even though actually you get quite quite vicious vampire killings you do, being, yeah. uh, taking place in the background and you know but it's very lightly but done. very lightly mm. done and I love I mean I love the casting Kayvan Novak I, I think is always brilliant I love Matt Berry a lot of people mm. Matt Berry is a, can be a bit of a Marmite figure but I'm, I love Toast of London I love everything he's ever did going back to the IT crowd Nat- Natasha Dimitriou is phenomenal as Naja, um, the, the female vampire. So I think the casting and the tone of it is perfect and it's, a, it's really good fun. It's just really enjoyable. Part of this works because you enjoy spending time in the company of all of these characters. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And I'm, I'm definitely going to keep watching this. It's loads of fun. Yeah, it's great. Very glad that we finally got this and that has been renewed for a second season. Well, There's been lots yeah. more of it to come. Yeah. We should also make, Can I also mention Mum, which starts on BBC Well, two. before you do, I oh, should okay. say... What We Do in the Shadows airs on Sunday 19th of May at 9.45pm on BBC Two. And I think they're putting it all out as a box set as well. Oh, are they? I think so. So partly why they wait so long is so they can get them all ready to watch. And Mum is also going to be available as a box set, the third series of um, uh, the fantastic Stefan Golachevsky comedy series starring Leslie Manville. If you haven't seen it, it's also all available on iPlayer. Um, It's a very, it's a kind of, it's like a kind of Mike Lee meets sitcom thing where Leslie Manville is a woman whose husband died um, kind of a couple of years ago and she's got his his best friend is also really good friends with her and they have this kind of will they won't they um, romance going on and there's She's got a kind of uh, a son who resents a new boyfriend. It's kind of fam- familial relationships, incredibly uh, obnoxious, annoying, posh, uh, would be posh. Um, her brother's wife and it's just got these interrelations it's kind of it's it's all about family and relationships and awkwardness and it's great <laughs> now we would normally go on to the banshee segment where we recommend shows of old for our listeners however this week we simply don't have the time so we're going to skip banshee this week but it will return next week can we choose our show of the week though <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, we need a show of the week. We need a show of... This is going to be difficult. You and Boyd may have to fight. The Virtues! 
Boyd? Ears and ears. Oh. <laughs> Does that mean I get the deciding vote? Yeah. Oh, and I will say... <laughs> Bosh. Right. <laughs> and with that, it's time for our breakdown of the latest episode of Game of Thrones. As ever, this comes with heavy spoiler warning. So if you've not yet seen episode five, then please do skip ahead to the time in the podcast description as we cannot be held responsible for what happens if you don't. Here be dragons. We are gathered here this bright and early Monday morning to discuss the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones, The Bells. Terry, what was your noob-centric take on this one? Oh, fuck me. Um, so <laughs> Good response. <laughs> I watched this at five o'clock this morning. Yeah. Can I just say that I never, ever want to watch a show like this again in the early hours of the morning <laughs> at the start of a working week. It's um, a lot, isn't it, on a Monday morning? It's so... Much. Okay, so what I felt was, as a newbie, I mean, Daenerys, what a bitch. Um, (laughs) But I felt like it was weirdly horrid. And I think I've I've felt this all the way along, which is is weird because I haven't seen any before this. But the kind of way that the, um, uh, what was his name? Iceman. Uh, Oh. um, The first guy they killed. You well, mean the, the Night King? Like the Night King. The Night King. The Night King. The way he was like dispatched summarily mm. very fast. Right, yes. um, it galloped through this episode. Um, and there was some, I have to say, from a cinematography perspective, the man on Twitter who said I'd say this is right, <laughs> it, there was some of the most beautiful shots I've mm. ever seen on television in this episode. There was yep. a shot of Daenerys in the first third where she was essentially, it was clear she'd gone mad. And the way it was lit, the. Just every, every, the framing of the shot, everything about the shot, I was just mm. like blown away. And then at, at the end as well with Aria, like there's a shot of her with smoke billowing mm. behind her. I mean, it was absolutely something. It was like paintings at points. It was, as you say, lit, as the kids say. <laughs> I definitely uh, don't say that. Um, I'm 39. They, they dusted Miguel Sapochnik back off again for this. This is Game of Thrones Battle Lord. And I think he did an extraordinary job of making this look amazing. Yes. And genuinely, I think some of the, some of the most stunning shots I've seen in the show. And that is the main positive thing I have to say Whoa. about this episode. Oh, my God. Uh, it looked it great. There. It was really well directed. Draw line underneath. Straight in there. In we, red. Ha- we do have to address the most exciting element of the whole show straight yeah. off. The appearance of D.I. Yes. Michelle oh Brundis. I was like... I was like <laughs> Her transfer name. from yeah. AC whatever it is has not gone well, has it? The AC12 <laughs> Westeros mix-up, mash-up. Yeah. I mean, Laura Elphinstone's name the actress. So exciting oh my to see gosh. her front and centre. I was screaming at the TV. Yeah, I was like, DCI Brandis, I think that's your name. Yeah. Um, can I just say, what I found extraordinary is she does have the face of, and I mean this in the nicest way, of like a peasant person. Yeah. <laughs> See, now I couldn't get away no, with Neither of us could get away someone. with that. No. <laughs> I was going to say she has the most striking face. But she does, but the, one of those, you know, like historically in TV and yeah. in period films, she would be cast as the peasant oh, who God, would yeah. die. Yeah. And that was what was made her casting in Line of yes. Duty extraordinary because, yeah. because women with really interesting faces do not get cast just in normal roles in yeah, TV. That's true. Yeah, that's um, true. So when she turned up as a peasant woman running yeah. for her life with her child, I, I was kind of excited and, you know, a little bit it was good to see D.I. Brandis running around the streets of King's Landing 
clutching a child. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that, that was it, nice. Now, not going well. This not whole episode, well. of course, revolves around one key plot point, which is Danny goes mental. Yes. Uh, and this, I think, is the crux of my, and let's be honest, everyone's issues with this episode because they haven't earned it. They really haven't. And I, and, and this it really bugs me. And I read a very, very interesting piece on this. Uh, someone who was saying that, you know, if you delve into the books, if you're paying attention during the books, that Martin is <laughs> laying but he's able to do it very well because he has the characters are they get viewpoints mm. so each chapter is a character viewpoint so the Danny viewpoints you get her internal monologue you see her uh, fantasizes about being a dragon she says some crazy stuff and in the most recent book she starts to hallucinate so he is laying Ooh. the groundwork for her going a bit crazy um, but in this it feels like the showrunners tried so hard to keep your sympathy with her up until the very last minute mm. that it feels like they've done a massive handbrake turn this season in particular they start with her having a face on then they start with her stropping at Tyrion and now she's just randomly setting people on fire see I don't I, I, we had to we discussed this a bit last week I was I don't agree with it at all uh, I feel her whole history in the show has been leading up to this see, point I, I think, don't feel I think it. it makes complete sense she's always been she's you know she for her yeah she, she, remember so she's committing war crimes here right yeah. this massive war crime <laughs> just a and bit. no one no one who's ever committed a war crime goes oh I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a criminal here I'm going to go too far I'm going to go mad and it's and that's what I'm doing she is justified within herself for her principles in doing what she's doing whatever the means she has to get to the end of power that she thinks is good for everyone because it's her but aren't you conflating two things right those two (laughs) things are her going mental or her doing something quite cold and clinical for the sake of the greater good right and they are two very different and distinct things and where I think James has got a point God help me (laughs) is that the showrunners are conflating those two things because what they've set her up as is I'm the breaker of chains and if people have to get her in the in the kind of attempt for the greatest good and the greatest good is that people People live without tyranny and and, and kind of um, not rule, but kind of oppressive rule. Then their deaths are not my fault; they're the faults of Cersei, right? Yeah. And they are absolutely part of war. That is very different to what I feel like was happening in this episode. That shot of her face was extraordinary and you were meant to see the demons flying across her oh, face. Sure. The use of shadow on her face. You were seeing a woman losing her grip. Yeah. Also, the universal sign for a woman on the edge, no makeup. No makeup. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't have her as a cold and clinical st- strategist of war who oh, no, is doing no. yeah. something for the future of civilization, <laughs> and a mad woman who's just lost her shit and forgot to put a foundation oh, on. Yeah, you can't no, have I... those I don't think it's the clinical thing at all. No, I don't think that, I don't mean that at all. I mean, she's always been someone who I think the madness, that madness within her has always been there. And that's part of her. And, and so it's like part of the madness is that she won't take into account the um, the results of her ridiculous actions with the bloody dragon setting fire to the entire, <laughs> to the entire King's Landing because, because of that inherent madness. And I, so I don't think there's anything clinical about it. No, I didn't mean that. I meant more that. But don't you think they're, Conflating those two things Not at times. Necessarily. I think it's more the spark. Mm. So the the moment arrives when she's going to unleash hell without bothering to care about the consequences. And so the spark is, the catalyst is, what's happened with her and Jon Snow, which, you know, I mean, that is, for someone who's obsessively, the whole obsessive bowing down to, bowing down before me, which has been there again right from the start, it's all right, it's all being very, we're all being the freer of slaves and everything, but if you're then egomaniacally yeah. insisting everyone Bend bows down to you, bends the knee, yeah. and, you are, and you are insanely obsessed about power, don't forget, she's obsessed about getting power, and the whole Jon Snow thing, she, that has completely ruined her to her core, because 
because she now she's realised she has to face the fact that she's not the rightful ruler. He is, and that so there's that element that has that has pr- turned her into this crazy woman, or at least allowed the crazy woman to come out within her, and the, or everything that happened to her in the beginning of this episode, having to kill Varys, all of that stuff. It all builds up, and that and that's why the the inner madness explodes. Why do you like, say having to? Yeah. That was an interesting choice of words. He didn't even get a trial. He well, got a trial by in, dragon in her, fire. In her, she, he, she, in her mind, because she always said if, if, if he betrayed her, she would kill him. She said, so she, she's so she's so kind of intent on... She, her, her kind of core being is built on her being the rightful ruler and anyone who stands in the way, she's going to destroy it. I feel that's been within her right from the start. And that's what played out in this episode. That madness, that's what played out. It's just, that's what she is. That's what she's... It's her core being. I, di- I didn't... I always thought she had to end up like this. And so did Giorgio Armati. Clearly, that's yes, like she yeah. has and to I, end up I in I believe this that. I do believe that. But I think what we're what I certainly what I'm bumping on here is all attempts at subtlety or finesse have long gone out the window, and they and they've been gone for a while. Let's not let's not you know mess about. This didn't just happen with this episode, but I'd not missed it so much until now because I think I felt like they they relied and they built on the foundations of the characterization that came before it, and then they moved everything along with just spectacle after spectacle, and that works to a point. But at this point, I just felt like. As a character, this madness thing, I mean, you may say that there have been seeds sown, and I, but I think in this, I've always seen that she's got a hard edge, that she's always been determined, that she's, you know, frankly, she can be quite formidable and also quite cold-hearted. But this one, where she suddenly goes off the deep end and has a proper, like, slightly back-combed, wild-eyed, crazy-hearing voices kind of like, ooh, Key, step away from the crazy woman time. You know, it was just like, it felt it felt a bit much. And given everything that character's been through, she's been dumped into a fire, she's been sold into slavery, she's been raped, she's been beaten, she's been all these sort of things. And yet, apparently, the death of a character who had maybe four lines of dialogue this entire season is what has pushed her over the edge. Can we, um, can we talk about the moment she does? Because I, I wanted to ask you guys what the trigger was in this exact moment. So it's when she's sat on the dragon, right? And she's looking well, over at Cersei and you see, and to be, and Amelia Clark is, I think, brilliant in this She moment. is. Yeah. You see her wrestling with what she's going to do next and some, she, I, I didn't, I couldn't tell if she saw something or something came to her, but she, in that moment, something flipped her over the edge and I was trying to work out what Yeah, it, it's not at all clear. It's made clear because Benny and Weiss talked about this in the kind of post-game uh, thing that they put on afterwards uh, that apparently it's the sign of the Red Keep, which kind of triggers her, which is like, it was built by her ancestors, taken from her family, and I guess it's the resentment of all that. Right. But that's not clear, and also even thinking about it now, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. She's literally never seen it before. Um, but that's a bit that didn't ring true to me. Like I, Weirdly, this battle, this battle of King's Landing, is almost the closest it's been to the books in terms of tone, because the books have always been about it doesn't matter whether it's the Baratheons or the Targaryens or the Starks or whoever, armies are full of bastards. Mm. and it's all rape and murder. Mm. And when the Dothraki were marauding, they were raping everyone. And this happens a lot, and it happens on both sides, and there are no good armies. There are just men with swords killing people. And he's always been very clear on that. For For the small folk, it really doesn't matter what pendant is flapping over the keep. You know, they just don't want to be killed by people. But... In this, I felt that they laid on the butter with like a spade, you know, like they had to show her having this big internal crisis. I feel that if it had been more subtly executed, if it had been that the Lannisters didn't surrender, that the battle was going on and she was just like, do you know what? This is war. I'm just going to torch the place. You know, you could, then you've got a moral conundrum about she was doing what she yeah. had to do to win a battle. And that's an interesting discussion to have. Whereas here, she actually won. There was no point to it other than madness. And she sets the entire city on fire, which I might add is now no use 
against her whatsoever. And I just thought, what is even happening here? I don't agree. I think there's loads of things happening, and I think there's so, there's so. I think it's all. It's partly also about the nature of war as well for me. Is that you know it got to the point, and, you, and your questions were interesting about that look. And for me, like I was going, lots of things were going through my mind. Partly, it's like it's too late. I've set this yeah. thing in motion. I don't, you know, it, it's I'm attacking this this place with my dragon, by the way. And of course, there's a whole lot of the dragons thing which we haven't mentioned, which is another yeah, big that's driving, that's driving issue in her. She's re- she has reached melting point, you know, in her as as a, as a being, and. I I thought just think at that moment it's like she set this whole thing and it's and it has to happen I think it was like and I have to get rid of Cersei and I don't care and I, I have to take over this whole place and I have to end up with ultimate power even and I think it's reaching and the other big theme for me is I think the ending is effectively going to be she's won but there's nothing left you know it's the empty the emptiness well, of that victory and I think that the emptiness of war and of um of fighting is one of the big themes I feel of George R. R. Martin I think you know the kind of absolute and this whole episode for me was about the pitiful pointlessness of violence there's almost like a massive like you know the two there's from from little, the individual fights between two people individuals like why won't you just die kind of thing every all the deaths and all the violence in this in this episode film was all about how pointless and pathetic it all is and she was at the she was at the forefront of that and i think it was just she just felt this is all, what's happening now, and I'm not, I'm not going to stop it. This is destiny. The big believer in destiny, and Literally. it was all part of the whole theme. Well, why grand did she? Theme. Why kill the? So uh, yeah. she killed all her that. people. She doesn't have to kill. So there was a way. Cersei was pretty much undefended. They yeah. they given up. The bell had been rung. They surrendered. She could have gone and and attacked her, and they could have been her people. So what? That's the that's the bit that I'm sticking on. Is even if I totally get yeah. pretty this much is, what you're saying, Boyd. Complete yeah. power. Yeah. Those people. They weren't loyal to Cersei for like more than three and a half minutes and they surrendered and she could have gone, killed Cersei and if that was ultimately what she wanted, but it wasn't, right? It was revenge you, and revenge yeah, was, for large was part, yeah. pushing, was killing everything and everybody. She didn't care who. I mean, I'm surprised she didn't fucking kill Jon Snow at one point. Well, she nearly did, yeah. I think people. it was. A, she yeah. was killing her own people. Absolutely. She didn't care. It was absolutely she just, yeah. Some people just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> yes, James. <laughs> ultimately. But, but, that, you're, that is, absolutely, that's what yeah. I'm saying, really. Yeah. That and, and that is, and, and it was there was madness there, and she just like her father before her wanted to set the city on. Fire. By the way, I'm not saying it's flawless this depiction of her, and I do think I think they I think they a lot of the huge amount of the heavy lifting was done by her performance. Yeah, right? I they she knew was great. they know how good she is. Well, she had to carry it, frankly. She had to carry it, right? Yeah, and she did. But I also think in in, in your point about the the lack of subtlety. I mean, in a way. They're caught between. So for me, I thought it was interesting. There weren't many reaction shots of her mm. once she'd yes. set the whole thing in motion. It was all very much done from afar and a yeah. distance, and you just didn't see her. I was like, right at the end, we're gonna get a shot of her. No, it's really it's interesting. Inter- really interesting. They kind of didn't give you that, and I'm and I was like, I almost felt they themselves had to do this thing with this character because it was part of George R. R. Martin's key design, and they couldn't quite work out the best way yeah. to well, show also, us. What would she? Because if she'd have looked happy, then right. you'd have hardened against yeah. her forever. And exactly. if she'd have looked, if she would been in tears, then do you know what I mean? I yeah. don't know what shot would have satisfied no. me as a right. viewer. I know, but it's it also dig- it did it did distance it from yeah. her yeah. when yeah. you see it. So you don't. You're completely right. It hadn't even occurred to me. You no, don't it's see weird. her, it and really it's actually weird. it's rather cool and feels like a video game, quite frankly. When you're going through the streets on a very human level, and you just yeah. see the dragon going above, torching. Everything. Oh yeah, there was some. Brilliant- but it's hard to reconcile the woman that they all called Misa, the mother, sort of like mm. when she liberated Mirian and they're lifting her up, and she goes and she cares for all of the peasants, literally setting. 
fire to. No soldiers. They were just civilians. She was just burning civilians. Yeah. The well, soldiers burn, no, were, were soldiers in a different... Burn. No, no, the soldiers were back in front of the Red Keep. She was just torching streets full of civilians for no particular reason other than to set them on fire. And it's like, that's a bit, a bit of a vault fast too many for me. And I can't, it was, I can't but, but it was a great decision, narrative decision to show it from their perspective. As yeah. you say, from the streets, yeah. Yeah. you're there amongst them and it's actually, yeah, with, as you say, it's a mix of everybody by yeah, that with point. The Brandis, no, yeah. with, yeah, with D.I. Brandis. D.I. Brandis, who is the standing the, for, we need you to care about peasants. Let's yes. bring in D.I. Brandis and a child. <laughs> then, and, and not to have, and maybe that was part and parcel of not showing um, Daenerys so much. Was, yeah. Because also, yeah. you know, you saw, can we just talk about Jon Snow for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> who, um, the doofus in chief. Yeah, didn't yeah. have to do much acting this, no. uh, this episode, did I he? I think his, his massive dull, dullardness, <laughs> like he is a dullard, was like, oh my God, what is going on? What is <laughs> happening? Yeah, what am I going to do happening? now? When he was like, what I loved is they were trying to show him res- like killing people in a resigned way because he had to. Yeah. He was so desperate not to do it, but when they were attacking him, what was he yeah. meant to do? But he just looked bored. <laughs> uh, like slamming the knife in really bored. Do you not feel like his his chemistry with Daenerys has kind of gone out the window. Like, I don't buy that romance at all at this point, whereas yeah. I totally did last season. In this, it feels so like, it goes, but I love you. Yeah, and I you're mean, just like, yeah. do you know? Well, and then he wouldn't, he wouldn't snog her, so then like that, that, that was another lad. catalyst for that. It's like that irritating lad who you meet and you're like, oh, you're really fit and you're probably too good for me. <laughs> and then you realise six months in they haven't got a personality and you're like, fuck, he was so pretty, I forgot to look at his mind. Um, talking about the best chemistry, though, of the episode. Go on. To Jamie and Cersei. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yes, of I course. mean, so I've yes, never yes. seen them on screen yeah, together. Yeah, and I was like, that's your sister. That's weird. Oh, yeah, that's like, been the... And absolutely. And interestingly, and that's a very good point, because interestingly, the whole kind of um, meaning of this now is that the, this incestuous wrong of all wrongs relationship is the love beautiful story. Yeah. Love, story the love story of Game of Thrones from the very first episode where they're shagging on the top of the thing and he throws Bran over the yep. window to now where they now. Here's the thing. Everyone's going on about. So I, I, I'm very naive and I thought they, if you, unless you show when you want to kill characters off, unless you literally show yes. them breathing their last and you linger on it and you make it... I don't think that they're definitely dead. I don't oh, think I do. they're dead. I don't think I they're do. definitely I dead. I mean, I they do. could be, but it's not definite. Weirdly, Nobody said that to me. It's more now. I was like, no, they're not dead, are they? Oh, weirdly, I, this was actually my favourite part of the episode in terms of this was sh- subtlety and this was restraint. And I thought to show those characters in that embrace and, as you say, bringing that relationship full circle and have them die in a, in a load of rubble as opposed to having her executed or something really gratuitous. Yeah, I like it that. It was the opposite of I the like Clegane that. Bowl, yeah. you know, like yeah, Sandor yeah. versus Gregor. Like, it was really subtle and I loved it. And I think they're dead and I don't think we'll ever see them again and that is absolutely right. And Do you know I what think- it reminded me of? Go on. Deep Impact. <laughs> Tia Leone and her dad on the beach when they get swallowed by the wave. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful nuance. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's Carry good. on. Yeah. Or of course, Jin Urso and uh, what's his chops? His name I always forget. On the uh, on the on the sea, looking out as the oh, yeah. as the planet explodes yeah. at the end of Rogue One. Yes. Yeah. No, less less so that. that. Less so that. I mean, Cassian no, Andor. That's his name. <laughs> I, I I agree with you about the, the, that. How they dim, how the demise happened. I just think that everyone's going. They, I, I just think. They're not 100% definitely. I don't think we're meant to believe necessarily they're 100% definitely dead. I think there's, a, there's an issue. Are they actually really dead? For me, is a is part of the way they did, I mean, in quotes, They die. were in the very bowels of the castle. But here's so. the thing, right? Yeah. Well, there was a shot just before that of Arya, um, you know, being 
a load of rubble. Speaking some of kind people of thing, who don't die. Right. A whole thing, like some kind of thing falling on her. Yeah. And she didn't die. And you thought, oh, is she dead as well then? And then she next next scene, she's fine. She's up and running, you know, getting great, jumping on the hall. So I felt like, well, we've seen what happens to her, but we haven't seen what happens to them. And she's, they're also in a rubble-related death incident. You could be right. I don't think you are. I will be okay. absolutely mortified if either of them are alive because oh, I think okay. that is the perfect end yeah. of two fantastic characters. And at that point, I will also say, Cersei has been wasted this season. Yeah. She is by far the best oh, character. Oh, I agree. 100%. And they've done nothing with her. And she got almost no dialogue in this episode. Wasn't it I weird? I cheated. It was weird that it took, I timed it because it was. I was like, when the fuck is Cersei going to arrive? Yeah. It was a half an hour before she was even seen in this episode, which effectively was all really all about her yeah. and what's going to happen to her. And then when they did show her, she had, as you say, like a couple of lines of dialogue. But I have I to do say, think, as somebody who hasn't been familiar with kind of her, yeah. her on-screen time and stuff before, she had my sympathy pretty much immediately. Yeah, absolutely. She's um, so I mean, partly because Daenerys was being, but she showed real yeah. human emotion. It was a Absolutely real contrast, not. actually, to what they'd done to Daenerys, which is to make her, like, her skin looked like concrete in places, and they made her rock. Mm. And actually, Cersei was like flesh and blood and yeah. tears and softness. Yeah. And um, I thought that contrast was incredible. So I was, I was actually like desperately willing. Oh, same. When she literally tiptoes down the stairs past... Um, Sandor. <laughs> Sandor. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll just leave you two yeah. to it. So so like, that, that shot where she goes down the stairs, they're having the big... They're starting the big fight. And you see the dragon, it's don't incredible. you fly? I mean, that was fucking... Visually brilliant. brilliant. Worst thing in the episode. What the fuck? Uh, one of the Why? worst things in this entire show. No, Why? I loved it was it. unashamed, unabashed, pointless, narratively inconsistent fan service. Yes, and we could have and all and lived this without whole, it. It's fan service. Yes, thing. and this no, no, no. There's a different Why is fan, fan service, service is, is not bad if it's done organically, which this show has always prided itself on organic characters, organic moments. This is also forced. This is like some. People got together on Reddit and wrote a screenplay, and it's no. like, yeah, and then they're gonna fight, and he's gonna stab him in the eye, and it's just like, oh god, no one needed this. There's no subtlety or grace. Oh, I or that. It was a great scene. It was a brilliant scene. I loved I hated it. it. I just oh, I thought totally disagree. Yeah, I was like, it was fantastic. I want a bit of because the rest of it was like you're dealing with like the slaughter of innocents, and you know, and just things happening that can never be undone, and everything's got so much gravitas and weight, and then every time it cut yeah. to those two having a scrap him and gouging his eyeballs out, you <laughs> uh. just die. Yeah. I was like, oh god, this could is have nice. been done. I thought it was fantastic. So much I did, it, it was weird that when they pulled the mask off, he, he was literally Darth Vader, wasn't he? From a little bit, yeah. yeah. From, I mean, yeah. yeah. This, again, this just felt like a God of War cutscene, and I was just like, oh, I, don't, mean, I don't even know what I that don't means. Know what I don't that means. need to see this. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, I didn't like that at all. That I was my low that. point on oh, this. I love Varys's death. I I didn't like that he died, but I enjoyed the way yeah, that, was that was done. That was great. And I, I loved he was great. Him and Tyrion. Tyrion little tugging at his. Yeah, oh, that was such a touching moment. Tyrion was brilliant. My old friend. So what I was that feel- line he said? The death something about saving thousands of innocents oh, in yes. return for yeah. Wonder Wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely Excellent. brilliant. Yeah, I feel he's going to end up executed. No, I, I feel he's going to survive. Oh really? I, think, well, I hope yeah. he does. He's Martin's favourite character, so it would make sense. Yeah, I feel he is. I feel he's he is Martin. Martin yeah, isn't he? Yeah, and I think that so. I think he's going to be there to the right to the end. I, I hope so. For me, I hope the last shot is, is him <laughs> on the throne. Or maybe even on the throne. <laughs> somehow, I don't know how. I don't know. I'm still holding out for Sansa. But let's let's yeah, talk no, a little bit about about 
this show's sort of treatment of there's a there's a weird aura of kind of sexism about this the way I feel like the message it's telling you is these women are too volatile and emotional to rule and they're all a bit hysterical and mad so you need a stoic northern lad to come in and bring a bit of common sense to proceedings I'm just like really is this your narrative I mean kind of yeah I mean when you were listing earlier all the things that had happened to Daenerys and you were like rape being sold in slavery blah blah I'm like she's a woman on telly welcome to what happens yeah. but Sansa's not like that, no, no, but she's become incredibly austere and remote. By, and, and she said last week that she's been carved by yeah, rape, essentially, sure. right? Yeah. So I think, I, I mean, it's difficult, right? Because there's a reality of what women experienced in war then. Yeah, I think there's a reality of how women were viewed. But I think the the tr- the problematic thing with um, Daenerys, especially, is this thing I'm talking about where. Um, there's a very easy get out to go, oh, she's gone hysterical. The, f- the female malady, yeah. do you know what I mean? And lay it all at the mm. feet of female madness. And that, that for me is where it gets a bit uncomfortable. But to be honest, Jon Snow... Um, he's a I mean he may be a bit more level headed but he's like a proper yeah. doofus right, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure anyone yeah. kind no, of exactly. escapes yeah. well in, in Game of I Thrones I agree I think the problem with yeah I think the Daenerys thing isn't really I think you know it, part, the, the madness runs in the family I don't think it's it her particularly being a mad woman in this no, particular he says case. every time a Targaryen is born the gods yeah, flip right. a coin so I think yeah. that's the issue rather than and I do think this, that whole story of Sansa and her completely different r- response and how she's ended up as a character mm. and Arya I mean Arya is also another great I think she was um, a brilliant Brilliant presence in this episode. I love the, sh- the her scene. Performance was amazing, and those yeah. amazing tracking shots following oh, her yeah. around and around through, trying to find her way to the Brandis. To the <laughs> Brandis. Yeah, I love that. That was brilliant, brilliantly done. All that stuff. Yeah, I loved all of that. And everyone's like, "Oh, but how come she's still only in her defense? She's very small, she so is. she can she nip is. between things." Yeah, I mean, she's she's the ultimate survivor. Isn't yeah, she? she is. She's fucking love Arya. She I also loved the moments with Arya in the house. Yeah, the totally. That he makes her yes. makes her stay behind, and that was brilliant because sometimes people are very harsh about the writing. I think like. Looking, I was looking on Twitter. You know what really irritates me, I have to say, and it does. Some, someone tweeted this morning predicting what we're all going to say in, and the way we say it, and, and it's absolutely right. But I do feel like people have this whole thing now because we have, because to, in the last two seasons, we're at the point where there are no George R. R. Martin books. So all these fanboy people are going, well, they don't know how to tell the story now, these showrunners. Mm. They don't know what mm. they're doing. Without the books, they have no idea. It's all rubbish. It's all been rubbish. And I'm like, they do know what they're doing. They're constantly talking to him. He has their complete approval of everything they're doing. You know, he's still heavily, hugely involved creatively. Don't tell them they don't know what they're doing. And I think, part, I thought the writing of Arya in this episode and and that whole father figure element was so brilliantly done because that mm. could have ended up seeming sexist. Like, no, no, I'm going to take over this thing now. I'm the big guy. I'm the seven foot tall thing who's going to fight my brother. You just run off, little girl. But and that you could interpret it that way. But the writing made sure you didn't. Yeah, he was. Like, he was like, I'm, I'm fucked. Yeah, like, this is all I have yeah. left. You have other things. Exactly. Yeah, and there was friendship there, and yeah. there was a father figure to her. And I thought she was brilliant. I think mm. the writing of her has been phenomenal all, all of these last few years. Ever since you know that season where she ended up having to go in, in that weird chamber. There was <laughs> nothing wrong with the House of Black and White. <laughs> the House of Black and White season, which went on and on and on, I think has ended up justif- justified because she is what she is now because of that. I will say just to your point about what the fanboys are saying about the writing I do think they have a point in that this is not the show that we started watching eight years ago this yeah. this is a very different show in the same way like the last two seasons of the West Wing are not Aaron Sorkin's show but they're very good in their own right I think the same is true of the last few of these that since they deviated from the books they've become a 
good show, but a different show because it doesn't have the pacing and the character and the sort of the sort of languid, almost luxuriating in character that the earlier yeah. seasons. Don't did. you think it's as much to do with the decision to say, right, we're going to finish this story? With these last two seasons, and we're going to have this number of episodes. Oh, it's pacing. I feel it's like almost like they they decide at that point where they decided this is what we're doing now for the rest of this season and announced it. It almost felt like there was the fate accomplished, wasn't it? Right, well, you have to finish this, resolve this story, and there had been some quite languid pacing of stories all the way through, as you say, the first six seasons, yeah. and then suddenly they've got right, we have to resolve everything. I think that it's almost that's more the issue for me is the way they did that rather than the actual the fact that there's no George R. R. Martin anymore to base the stuff on. I mean, I do have to say because everyone was talking before this season started about the um, feature length episodes, and mm. I was like, God, how are they going to do that, and how are they going to have enough? Material? And but it still feels weirdly rushed. Yeah, that, I agree like, with that. Like, it, it is rough. Cramming yeah. things yeah. in and not allow you know, yeah. with things not happening yeah. on screen and and just move things moving far quicker than I think the audience might be ready for. You definitely get the sense of we're running out of yeah. of time yeah. here. Mm. And that goes back to your point of last week when, you, when we didn't see the Jon Snow telling yes. um, the, the family yes. that, that, that. Now I've kind of done a, a reverse on that because I, can't, I think I agree with that now. Oh, I'm, st- I'm still with it. I don't need to hear that explained again. I, I think that, that was my but thing at the time, but now I feel what, when yeah. she's a using that to accuse him of betrayal you want to have that in, in your head and you know he'll have done it in a way that made it clear he was super loyal to Daenerys because he's a complete wimp but <laughs> you want that context you want to have yeah. been in that conversation you want to see how Sansa right like, and I'm now, but I'm now thinking ahead because that, that, that is going to be a big element I think and the fact that we didn't see that conversation I'm, I'm very interested to see how Sansa and Arya and him are all going to resolve this mm. in, in the finale next week I mean, one good thing I think we can all agree Euron Greyjoy oh. is dead Thank, yeah, thank God. God. He is a character who is from a different Which show. One? Isn't that Euron? Euron. The, the guy who fought with goes on Jamie. Beach, Greyjoy, oh. runs the Iron Fleet. What, the, what was the point in that fight? Oh, I, I do was not like, know. That felt like a weird aside. When he came up out the sea, I was <laughs> oh, like, oh God, just let him crack on so we can have his reunion. You want to cut that whole sequence and just have it so that he died in the fire. Yeah. I think they wanted to have some um, jeopardy for Jamie, didn't they? I like, think maybe they we'll wanted to Jamie now. jeopardy for I Jamie. I think they wanted him to be dying when he got to Cersei. Yeah, that's thought right. That was, yeah, that was that so. made that really bittersweet. Yeah, like that. It doesn't matter. Just that that, that he couldn't get out of yeah. the the catacombs, yeah. and like he, he was already dead. And he was fairly. He was absolutely sprightly, considering you've been stabbed about eight Twice, times yeah. in that in that bat, in that fight yeah. with Euron. Euron's awful, awful character. Yeah, horrendous. And can Can't we talk about him. their shit? weapon things bearing in mind they like yeah they were destroyed very quickly yeah, yeah slaughtered her dragon last oh, she week she came to them out of the sun yeah. that's I a know, smart I, bit of approach and then there's that whole I mean that was pretty heavily laid on you know so when yeah. they all look at everyone goes what's happening oh yeah. can you feel something can you hear, can you hear something yeah. everyone looks at the sky over about three minutes if you think something's coming out of the sky it's probably one of them dragons you don't like yeah I know I, and she torches the fleet and then torches the battlements making a complete nonsense of their dragon killing crossbows uh, I suppose that I, it's, it's something I want to say which is I never truly believed it was a battle so from the beginning it yeah. was clear it was going to be a slaughter, it's a slaughter. oh yeah completely which yeah. um which does, did for me take some of the mm. the mm. kind of tension out of it because there was never a, it was is Daenerys going to stop at any point? Yeah. The Golden no. Company a bit shit it turns <laughs> they out. They were all a bit shit. See, if they'd only had their elephants, if they'd only yeah. had their elephants. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they all die. It's all a bit horrific. Also, Daenerys' wildfire exploding all over the city, which was an interesting one. The green. Yeah. yeah. So so presumably still part of the Mad King's caches that were sort of stuck, were being ignited by the dragon fire. Yeah, and that was like you thought that maybe you know they just they'd use the wildfire somehow to you know as as a way of of of, of, of fighting back. Some 
kind of defence, but that just no. I think this just there's, there's wildfire around using... the city, and they were just exploding right, yeah. under the the dragon fire. I mean, my issue again, the game bowl thing and all of that. It felt like this was this episode began with a bunch of boxes that needed ticking and it was just right done and done and done and we get through this and we get through that and this was my overwhelming feeling right another one off the spreadsheet it was like playing game of thrones finale bingo and i just uh, no i, I didn't, didn't feel I didn't organic feel no i i'm less all main course no starters that's what this was <laughs> and no desserts but, i mean considering it's or the, tea considering it's the penultimate episode i mean what else can they do really but these, i thought the violent i i have to say i thought all the, the depiction of the raw disgusting yeah. brutality yeah. It was, was nasty, brilliant wasn't it yeah. so that, that for me that was what their focus was you mm. know like all everyone dying but also just the sheer war is hell element you know was mm. was brilliantly done very very gory once they start yeah. slaughtering the kind yeah. of Lannisters they yeah. hurriedly pick their swords yeah. back yeah this up. was like peak peak violent game of thrones it was yeah but like i suppose my issue is that these characters who we have grown to love over many years because they're so layered and textured and complicated feel a little bit like thin sort of shadows of their former selves to me now. Like, I'm feeling like a lot of the depth of those characters has kind of evaporated. Uh, And that's not to take anything away from the performances. I do think they have relied on those actors enormously. By not giving them an awful lot of actual character work in the script, they have really relied on them to carry this emotion and to sell these these terms yeah. and they've all done it very well and we rag on Jon Snow a lot but I do think Kit, Kit Harrington is doing a very good job with that character yeah, but he's just doing what he can oh, yeah. do with Captain Doofus yeah. like you know that's that's yeah. you know there's no disrespect to him so yeah. so lots going on on here and I think my takeaway from this is at the end of this episode you've got Jon as a kind of lackluster hero and Daenerys is a slightly unconvincing villain as we go yeah. into the final episode and that's maybe not where I thought we'd be at this point and Santa's nowhere, right? So Santa's like, nowhere at the moment. So, yeah. and that that for me feels like the the kind of they've left her out of the entire episode mm. for a reason. Oh yeah, yeah. And she's up north. She, but yeah. I think there's there's yeah yeah it's gonna be because I've got my my fingers crossed for her because she's the only one I still kind of vaguely. Yeah. Like or respect. Oh, completely. Her. She's the one. She's we have a rooting for her. We have yeah. an hour and a half left, and Daenerys has emerged as the unlikely or in Boyd's case, very likely <laughs> ultimate baddie in this. Oh, completely. I think um, um, Arya's going to kill her. But that seems quite yeah. obvious. Yeah, I thought I, that, I but it does seem quite obvious. But Mr. Fanservice, obvious stuff. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> right. There's a checkbox with her name on it. I also think the way that it was interesting and important, the way it was shown from her perspective so often, and you saw the brutality that she saw yeah. when she saw the little girl yeah. burn to yeah. Chris, and I thought they've shown her being, she's been shown the, the consequences of Daenerys' yeah, actions over yeah. and over and over again and that's done something to yeah. her yeah. and changed her and I think, and that's going to be the fuel yeah. for... Pushed yeah, over agree. the edge by D.I. Brandis. Pushed yeah. over the edge by D.I. Brandis's daughter. And by the way, that if they do do that, I think that would be hugely satisfying if they do it properly. After if, that. if they do it if properly, they do yes. It properly, I think yeah. that's key. And I, I need I need some subtlety. I need some more Jamie Cersei death stuff in the final episode and less Game Bowl nonsense. <laughs> Let's have subtlety, please. Let's get <laughs> back to what both. Made, make Game of have Thrones both. great again. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so you're the Donald Trump. Of body the... count this episode. Varys, Euron, Jamie Cersei. Question marks over those for Boyd. The Hound the mountain and and Kyburn and let's be honest nobody cared no so yeah, one one to go one more throne and then we're done and HBO can shut up shop and go home <laughs> yeah right yeah carry on with the three or four <laughs> spin-off prequels and 
series. Right. And that is it for another pilot podcast. If you'd like to shower us with love, then feel free to do so on social media at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. Uh, We would also, as ever, appreciate a review and five-star rating on iTunes if you haven't already. You too could have your opinion of the podcast immortalised for all time, much as Cy Woodhall did when he wrote... Overly profane, massively indulgent, superfluously waffly, yet somehow quite compelling. A sentence that I very much hope will form part of my eulogy. Join us next week when, among other things, we'll be talking to Jared Harris about his role in Chernobyl and, yes, you guessed it, The Expanse. The legendary OPA leader Anderson Dawes will be in the house. Until then, pilot out.